Finally, we complete our study of the rapture by asking, who will be taken up in the rapture? Is it all born-again believers of the church age, or only those who are fully living for the Lord? The partial rapture theory says that not all born-again believers will be raptured, but only the overcomers, those who deserve it. So, only five-star Christians will go up, and the rest will have to go through the tribulation, which will function as a kind of Protestant purgatory, to f complete their sanctification, as they're not yet ready for heaven. Often, people who say the church needs to go through the tribulation think this way, believing that the suffering of the tribulation is necessary to purify the church. But my Bible says that we're cleansed by the blood of Christ and the, by the word and spirit of God. You can see how a partial rapture makes for a good altar call. You know, if you don't get your life straight, you'll have to go through the tribulation and the Antichrist will get you, so you better repent. However, this is not biblical. It's based on human reasoning. The rapture is part of our salvation by grace alone, apart from our works. Thus, our works do not determine if we qualify to go up in the rapture. The rapture is the completion of our salvation, the resurrection of our bodies. In fact, if we're in Christ and Christ is in us through the new birth, when he comes, we'll automatically be drawn up to meet him in the air. This is clearly taught in the main rapture passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 to 17. Notice that those who are raptured are described as the ones who are alive when he comes, who believe that Jesus died and rose again. Also, those who are resurrected at the same time as, are described as those who sleep in Jesus and as the dead in Christ. It says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. In saying the dead in Christ will rise first, it's clear that as far as those who have died are concerned, the only qualification for them to rise at this time is that they're in Christ. In this group, some were faithful Christians, but others, not so much. But as long as they're in Christ, they'll be raised at this time. Now, it'd be unrighteous of God to use a different criteria for the living believers. This is confirmed by what he says next. Having described the rising up of all the dead in Christ, he says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The we who are alive must also be those who are in Christ, who are alive when the rapture happens. 1 Corinthians 15.51 confirms that all living believers will be raptured. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We, we believers, will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Will Christ be presented with a disfigured bride, with an arm, leg, an eye, and half her teeth missing? I don't think so. The whole body of Christ will rise to meet the Lord in the air. The partial rapture theory says not all those in Christ will be raptured, but only the overcomers. Now, it's true that there are promises given to the overcomers in Revelation 2 and 3, including the promise of the morning star. 228. So it follows that only the overcomers will make the rapture. But what is the Bible definition of an overcomer? Revelation was written by the Apostle John, so we should allow John himself to define who is an overcomer. 
And in 1 John 5 verse 4, he says, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So, who is the overcomer? It's the one who is born again, who believes Jesus is the Son of God. So anyone born again is an overcomer. If you've put your trust in Christ, you're an overcomer. You don't have to try and become an overcomer. You are one already. Christ has already overcome the world. He said that in John 16. And in him, you are more than a conqueror. Praise God. If you're in Christ, then through your union with Christ, all the promises of God are yours in Christ, including the promise of the rapture. To confirm this, if you study all the promises to overcomers in Revelation 2 and 3, you'll discover that they are promises given to all believers and not just to a certain elite group of believers. The final proof that the partial rapture theory is wrong is that both Romans 14.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.10 say, we, that's we believers, shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. All believers from the church age will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account and to receive their eternal rewards. And this will happen soon after the rapture. Therefore, all true believers in Christ must be raptured together in order to all stand together before Christ. This answers the main emotional motivation and appeal behind the partial rapture position, which comes from the feeling that if all believers were in the rapture, it would be unfair, for surely there should be a difference made between faithful and unfaithful Christians. Indeed, there will be a big and eternal difference between believers according to their faithfulness. But this is not manifested in who goes up in the rapture, but in what happens after the rapture at the judgment seat of Christ. There, we will receive eternal rewards of glory, opportunity and authority, which will differ greatly according to our works in this life. So how we live now is vitally important and will make a big difference to our eternal glory. Those who are lazy, careless servants will deeply regret wasting their time and opportunities, but those who faithfully walk with God and obey him will be amazed at his generosity on that day. In conclusion, every blessing of salvation, including our resurrection body at the rapture, is equally ours on the basis of grace independent of our works. However, our eternal rewards will be reckoned to us according to our works. We'll all have different degrees of reward depending on how we live now, according to our faithfulness to God. To summarize our discussion of the rapture, let's point out some of the many differences between the rapture and the second coming of Christ, which mark them out as two separate events. 1. In the rapture, Christ returns to the air. In the second coming, he comes to the earth. 2. The rapture is a joyous reunion. The second coming, on the other hand, brings terrible judgment. 3. In the rapture, Jesus is seen by believers only. In the second coming, he's seen by all. 4. In the rapture he comes secretly as a thief in the night, but in the second coming he comes openly in manifested power and glory. 5. In the rapture he comes as the bridegroom, but in the second coming he comes as the king of kings and judge of all. 6. In the rapture he comes as the morning star, but in the second coming he comes as the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. 7. In the rapture he removes believers from the earth by translation. But in the second coming, he removes unbelievers from the earth by death. 8. In the rapture, Christ comes for his bride. But in the second coming, he comes with his bride. 9. The rapture brings in the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. 
but the second coming brings in the millennium, the time of Israel's restoration. 10. The rapture's imminent and signless, but the second coming is preceded by many signs. 11. The rapture is related to the church, but the second coming is related to Israel and the nations. 12. The rapture's a mystery, but the second coming is revealed in Old Testament prophecy. 13. At the rapture, all the believers of the church age will be judged, but at the second coming, all the surviving Gentiles will be judged. 14. After the rapture, Israel's covenants still remain unfulfilled, but after the second coming, they will all be fulfilled. 15. After the rapture, the earth will be unchanged, but after the second coming, the earth will be restored. 16. After the rapture, evil and the Antichrist will be released, but at the second coming, evil and the Antichrist will be judged. 17. The rapture comes before the day of the Lord's wrath, but the second coming is the climax and conclusion of that day. 18. Life before the rapture will be going on as normal. Men will be saying peace and safety. But in the great tribulation, just before the second coming, things on earth will be at their worst ever. 19. The rapture is for believers only, but the second coming is for everyone. 20. The rapture is the expectation of the church, our blessed hope of being taken to heaven. But the second coming is the expectation of Israel's earthly hope of the messianic kingdom. We now turn to study the future and ultimate destiny of individuals. These are the foundational doctrines of the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment of Hebrews 6.2. This subject of life after death is clearly of great importance to us and the Bible has much to say about how God will deal with each individual as they cross the threshold of this life into eternity. Ultimately God, the judge of all, will divide mankind into two groups with two very different destinies. Whereas the judgments of God in time on the scene of human history may be upon a whole group of people such as a family or nation, God's eternal judgment determining each person's eternal destiny will be solely a judgment of that individual. God says in Ezekiel 18, 1-4, What do you mean by using this proverb? The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel any more. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. The people, you see, were excusing their sin by blaming their fathers, so that God could not hold them responsible. But God rejects this excuse. Although the sin and historical judgment of the fathers does affect their children, God warns them that he holds each man individually responsible for his own condition, so that God's eternal judgment of each man will be solely based on his choices, his character and conduct, independent of his ancestors or nation. The judgment of each individual soul by which its destiny is settled for eternity is described again in verse 20. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be on himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be on himself. The Bible teaches that mankind generally goes through three phases of existence. First, the first phase is this life where our spirit lives in a mortal body, a death-doomed body. We're a spirit, we have a soul and we live in a body. And this phase ends at physical death when our spirit soul leaves our body. 
The second phase is called the intermediate state. When our spirit lies, lays aside our body at death, we continue to exist, but as a disembodied spirit. This isn't how God designed us to be, so it's just a temporary state in the interval between our death and resurrection. The third and final phase is the eternal state, which starts at our physical re resurrection, when our spirit puts on an immortal resurrection body. An exception to this is those believers who are alive at the rapture and who are alive at the end of the millennium. These will go direct from phase one to phase three without experiencing the intermediate state. The Bible teaches that after death, the invisible part of man, his spirit and soul, will live on independently from his body. This is called the immortality of the soul. Although the body is mortal, that is subject to death, because it's made from the earth, which came under the curse, man's spirit is immortal, because its origin is the breath of God. Genesis 2.7 describes the creation of the first man. The Lord formed man out of the dust of the ground, that's his body, and breathed into his nostrils the, the breath of life, that's his spirit, and man became a living soul. When the spirit was breathed into the body, they fused, and the result was a living soul or personality. Notice the material and immaterial parts of man are clearly distinguished. The body is dust that dies, but the spirit is made from God's breath, which cannot die. Therefore, the spirit soul lives on after the death of the body. In fact, physical death is simply the separation of the spirit from the body when the body is no longer able to house the spirit. Physical death is the state of the body after the spirit has left, as James 2.26 says, the body without the spirit is dead. Jesus said in Matthew 10.28, fear not them who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. So our soul is not subject to death. It is not killed when our body is killed. It continues to exist. The Bible speaks of the outward man and the inward man. The man on the inside, the spirit man, is the real us. The outer man, or body, is just the clothing of the spirit, allowing the inner man to act and express itself in this world. The outward man is mortal, but the inward man is immortal. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Even if the body decays and dies, the inward man continues to exist. 2 Corinthians 4.17 continues, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen, including our body, are temporary. But the things which are not seen, including our spirit, our inward man, they're eternal. Both the Greeks and the Hebrews believe this. But some modern cults reject this and teach the false doctrine of soul sleep. In our study of the intermediate state, we'll see many scriptures that show that when both believers and unbelievers die, they continue to exist as spirits and are fully conscious. First, let's note some scriptures that declare that a believer's spirit continues to live on after death. In the Old Testament, it's often said that when someone died, he was gathered to his people, like Abraham in Genesis 25, or that he went to his fathers. In 1 Samuel 2.23, David said when his baby son had died, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. The immortality of the soul is confirmed by Psalm 22.26, your heart will endure forever. And by Ecclesiastes 3.11, which says he's put eternity in man's heart. Psalm 73 verse 23 expresses the believer's hope. I'm continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me, and afterward, after this life, you will receive me to glory. 
1 Peter 3 4 says we should adorn ourselves with the qualities of the hidden man of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit the hidden invisible man of the heart is our reborn human spirit which is incorruptible and indestructible 1 Peter 1.23 explains why. It says our spirit's been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Through the new birth, believers are said to now possess eternal life. Therefore, we do not cease to exist at death or go into some kind of unconscious soul sleep. John 3.16 says, whoever believes in the Son has everlasting life. Jesus said in John 5.24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, possesses eternal life. That's in his reborn spirit. Jesus said in John 6.47, he who believes in me has eternal life. In John 11.25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection, that's for the body, and the life, that's for the spirit. He who believes in me, though he were dead, physically dead, yet shall he live. That's by the resurrection of the body. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That is, his spirit will never die because it's got eternal life. Clearly, this isn't saying that our body will never die physically, but that our spirit will never die. Because when we believe in Christ, we'll receive God's eternal life into our spirit. This proves that our spirit continues to live on forever in the presence of God, even after our bodies die. As Romans 8 says, even death will not separate us from the love of God in Christ. Now, most Jews of Jesus' time believed in life after death, except the Sadducees, as Acts 23.8 says. The Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. So they did not believe man could live on as a spirit after death. Their belief contradicted the prophets. But they only accepted the Torah, the first five books of Moses. They only accepted that as God's word. So in Matthew 22.31, Jesus proved they were wrong from Exodus. He said, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So many years after their death, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still alive in spirit before God. Luke 20, 38 adds, for all live unto him, even those who've died. So when we die physically, we do not cease existing because we are essentially a spirit created in the image of God, who is a spirit. Our body is simply our earth suit. The Bible compares it to clothing that we take off at the end of the day. Although in the intermediate state we'll be unclothed for a time, we'll continue to be conscious until we're clothed with an eternal body. The Bible also compares our present body with a tent, a temporary dwelling place that we will lay aside one day, and then later in the resurrection we'll receive a permanent house from God. The Bible also teaches that all mankind is divided into two groups with two different eternal destinies, which is decided at death when a permanent separation between the righteous and unrighteous takes place. The condition of each soul at death will determine its destiny for eternity. Of course, we know it happens that some, someone can die and then be resuscitated. So we're talking about the moment when his body finally dies. Ecclesiastes 11.3 says, whether a tree falls towards the south or towards the north, wherever that tree falls, there it lies. The tree falling represents a man dying. The position in which he falls in death, whether towards sin or toward God, decides the position he'll be in forever. This is a very serious warning, for every person is just a breath, a heartbeat away from stepping into eternity. 
Are you ready for eternity? Only now, while you're alive, do you have the chance to get right with God. After that, your eternity is fixed. As God warns in Revelation 22.11, his judgment on you will be, He who is unrighteous, let him be unrighteous still. And he who is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he who is righteous, let him be righteous still. Every man either dies under condemnation or under grace, either in his sins or in the Lord. Man's problem is that he's born in a state of sin in Adam and so is automatically guilty. That's why Jesus said he didn't come to condemn the world because it was condemned already. Jesus came to save us through his perfect life, sacrificial death and victorious resurrection. He's man's only hope of salvation for there is salvation in no other name. Each person has a choice to accept or reject Christ and his salvation. Those who trust in Christ are put into Christ and receive his salvation, and so they will die in the Lord. But those who reject him, they continue to be in their sins and will eventually die in their sins and be lost forever. In John 8:24, Jesus said, You will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. He is saying that it's essential to believe in the deity of Christ to be saved. It isn't enough just to know Jesus as a good man. You must know him as the God-man. The Christian confession of faith, which is an evidence of our salvation, is Jesus is Lord. That is, he's God. When Romans 10.13 says, All who call on the Lord, Jesus, shall be saved, this is a quote from Joel 2.32, where the Lord translates the divine name Yahweh or Jehovah. Thus we must call upon and confess Jesus as God, the Son of God, to be saved. Those who receive Christ are baptized into Christ, and his righteousness is imputed to us as a free gift. And on that basis, every blessing is ours, including eternal life in the presence of God. And that's why Revelation 14.13 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Thus, the first stage of man's eternal judgment happens immediately after his death. As Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment. Ecclesiastes 12.7 says that at death, the dust, the body, will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. So when the spirit is released from the body, it briefly comes before God, who then sends it to one of two locations, either a place of punishment or to a place of blessing called paradise. At this point, his eternal destiny is fixed. It's too late to repent. This intermediate state as a disembodied spirit is just temporary until the time when God will reunite man's spirit with his body in the resurrection, in which he will then stand before God for the second and final stage of his eternal judgment, when he will be released into his eternal state. There are two possibilities. First, he who dies in his sins is in a state of unrighteousness, as he hasn't trusted in Christ and received his forgiveness and righteousness, and so he'll be judged as such and sent to a place of initial punishment to await his resurrection unto eternal judgment. The second possibility, he who dies in the Lord, is the one who has received Christ and so is in Christ and has been clothed in his righteousness. Therefore he's been forgiven and declared righteous and has already passed from death to life. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, praise God. So he's immediately released to go to paradise to await his resurrection unto eternal glory. So, as with our court system, eternal judgment is in two stages. Stage one happens immediately after death. This judgment determines their guilt or innocence, which depends on whether they've put their faith in Christ or not. At this point, 
A man's eternal destiny is fixed, decided and determined forever, whether eternal life in heaven or eternal death in hell. Thus at death, God separates people into two groups, the righteous and the wicked. The righteous spirits go to paradise, but the wicked go down to a place of punishment under the earth called Hades, which is a holding cell where they're kept until their final sentencing and dismissal into their final place of punishment, which is Gehenna, or the lake of fire. For both groups, this is a period of waiting for the second stage of their eternal judgment, which happens immediately after their physical resurrection. When the righteous are resurrected, they'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ, where they'll be judged according to their works, to determine their degree of eternal reward of glory, which depends on their faithfulness to God in this life. Then, as that glory will be released in them, they will enter their eternal state. When the unrighteous are resurrected, they'll stand before the great white throne for their final sentencing. This judgment isn't to decide their guilt or innocence, for that was already decided at the first stage. In this judgment, they'll be judged according to their works, to determine the degree of their everlasting punishment, which depends on the degree of their rebellion against God and how much light they had rejected in this life. Then they'll be sent into the lake of fire, where they will be forever. This is their final eternal state. So generally, the first stage of eternal judgment is to determine guilt or innocence, and that's at the time of death. And the second stage, to determine the degree of reward or punishment, is at the time of resurrection. Whereas the first stage is a private judgment, the second stage is a public judgment, when God will publicly reveal and review every man's works.